So as you look out into the world, there's no question that something that's going to strike you as you think about the situation in the world is that there are definitely many problems in the world. Of course, much suffering, many injustices, many difficulties. And the question that we might be inclined to ask is, does God care about this at all? Does God see all these things around us and does he care in the least that anything is happening All this suffering is happening. And for most of us, it might seem at times like God is completely silent in this matter. But you know, Amos is very different in that. He looks on all the injustices of the world. He looks on all the problems in the world. And instead of seeing God as uninvolved and silent, he sees God roaring like a lion. He hears him so clearly. He sees God as being intensely concerned about what is going on in the world. As Rabbi Abram Heschel put it, most of us who care for the world bewail God's dreadful silence while Amos appears smitten by God's mighty voice. And so oftentimes when we think about our need to see God in the midst of these problems, we think of, Comfort, and we think of our need for consolation when we are dealing with these struggles. But we also need to remember that and think that meeting God may be a bit different than we think. He is the comforter, He is the healer, but He's also the lion, He's also the commander, He's also the Lord. We may think He's on our side, but in a way, He's not on anyone's side, He's on His own side. And the question is whether we are we with him. He shakes us out of our complacency. Meeting God might not be as comforting or easy as we think. And that's one thing that Amos challenges us with. We need to prepare to meet our God because we will give an account to him. So I want us to to see how Amos describes this situation. And in order to do that, I want us to to look at three things. So first of all, some... So an understanding of the context of Amos. So, so try to understand what's going on in history that will help us understand what Amos is saying. And then secondly, the content of the book, that is, what does he actually say into this context? And then third, some considerations that we can take to apply to our lives. So the context, the content, and the considerations. So in regard to the context of the book of Amos, uh, there's three things that I want you to see as you, as you read this book. First is, we've got to remember the background history. I've repeated this before, but it's really crucial to understand. It is, um, so you remember that God raised up David um, to be, took him from being a shepherd to be the king of Israel. And he ruled over all the tribes of Israel. And then under his son Solomon, the kingdom achieved great heights and did amazing things. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam came to the throne, then the people asked for relief because they said, doing all these great things is costing us too much. And he said, forget about it. I'm going to be more strict than my father ever was. So the northern tribes uh, revolted. Ten tribes. And they formed the northern kingdom, 
of Israel, with its capital at Samaria, and under the reign King Jeroboam. So not to be confused with Rehoboam. So, so Jeroboam rules over the northern kingdom, and it's called Israel. So that's a little confusing, because the whole kingdom's called Israel. And then you have a smaller kingdom also called Israel. So try to get this, so try to get this clear, though. And then, and then the tribe of Judah, where David was from, remained loyal to the house of David, as did the tribe of Benjamin, which is kind of small right next door. And so the capital of the southern kingdom is the kingdom, uh, is Jerusalem, which is where God put his temple. So that's important. So as you read all the prophets, it's really important because some of them are prophesying to the northern kingdom, some are prophesying to the southern kingdom, and they have quite a few different characteristics. So that leads us to the second thing. So Amos is from the southern kingdom. He's a southerner. And he goes to, but he goes to prophesy to the northern kingdom. Now, of course, oftentimes, these people don't like prophecies that are going to speak of judgment on their nation. But that's all the more true when it's someone coming from another place to tell you that you have all sorts of problems. And so, um, you can see what happens in chapter 7. We read, Then Amaziah, priest of Bethel, that's in the northern kingdom, that's where they worshipped, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. This is another Jeroboam, like 200 years later. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. And then we, we then read, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. In other words, go back to the south where they want to hear you. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. And so Amos said, responded, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So why did, why did Amos go to another land to tell them that they needed to repent because the great God was coming against them in judgment? Because God told him to. And so he couldn't hold it in. It was like a a message that he had to speak. As he says in chapter 3 verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So he would do this in spite of the challenge of being from a different kingdom. So that's the second thing. Amos is from the south. He prophesies to the north. Then the third thing is that the northern kingdom was in great prosperity at this time. In terms of their GDP, things look pretty good. Things are going well. Amos recognizes this. Listen to what he says. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. So that's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but this was their situation. There was a lot of prosperity in the northern kingdom. And so that actually becomes a big part of his message. And that's what we want to talk about next. What is the content then of Amos' 
prophecy. What Amos begins by saying is that the Lord has something to say. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord roars from Zion like a lion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. And what does he have to say? He wants to speak about sin. He says, For three sins of Damascus and for four I will not relent. And if you read chapter 1, you'll see that that's kind of the refrain. For three sins of Damascus and for four. For three sins of Edom and for four. And he goes through a list of nations saying, look at how bad they are. And God is coming to judge them. And you can imagine that if he began his message this way, the nation of Israel would be like, this is a great message. Preach it, brother. We like this. Because he was saying, there's going to be judgment on all these people that are giving them problems. So they like that. But then all of a sudden he turns to Judah, the southern kingdom. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Now they might be saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is getting a little too close for comfort. But we really didn't like those people from Judah anyway. But then it comes finally to Israel, the last refrain. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And these sins and God's response are the, provide the content of this book. So that's the rest of what Amos is going to talk about. And so what are the sins? Well, here it's described, Amos chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. And so this is the big thing for Amos in the book of Judah. He says that that you're, you, you are doing well, you have lots of money, but you don't care about the suffering of people. In other words, you're not paying attention to the people around you. And indeed, you don't even care if you take stuff from them. You don't care about justice. You live as if you're the only people who lived and everybody was for you. That is the problem. And so he goes on to say, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. I thought Ben Shingleton was going to preach on that for Mother's Day. So, but I'm glad he decided not to. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty harsh, right? I mean, it's like, Amos, come on, man. This is not the way you talk to people, right? So they built their prosperity at the expense of the poor. They levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. So the, the point being is they could have all this prosperity, but if they didn't care about the people around them, then God was not accepting them. This is, it's not okay 
to live in disregard of the people around you, let alone to do specific injustices. And the interesting thing about this is that they were a very religious people. There was a lot of religion going on in the northern kingdom. You can see this in what we read. Um, in uh, chapter 5, they're having, they had huge religious festivals, all kinds of sacrifices. So that's what's going on, but how, what did God think of this? Listen, verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings. In other words, you're bringing the best stuff you got. I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. You've got great music. Away with it. I will not listen to the music of your harps or electric guitar, organ, or piano. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. So in other words, God is, if, if people come and they have these religious feasts, outward religious things, that look good, that would be impressive. I mean, if we went there, we would see this and be like, wow, they are really doing something here for the Lord. If there's no justice, God is not interested in it. God, there's, there's no substitute for faith, hope, and love in the worship of God. And we cannot ignore the horizontal at the expense of the vertical. In other words, we can't just say, I, I have a good relationship with God, but how I treat people doesn't matter. God doesn't look at it that way. Those things go together and are a reflection the one or the other. And so, again, Rabbi Heschel sa- says, in res- says, commenting on this, what this means, though, positively, is that there is a living God who cares Justice is more than an idea or a norm. Justice is a divine concern. In fact, he was so interested in justice that he would not fail to deal with injustice in his own time. And so Amos describes the Lord coming in power and coming in might to deal with the injustice that was all around them. Listen to what he says in verses 8 and 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, two constellations, who turns midnight into dawn, darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. And in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains... He who creates the wind and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn into darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. And so he saw this powerful vision of God. God was coming to judge the world. And so the message that he gives is prepare to meet your God. And it's going to be very different than you think. Now, that does not mean, though, that there's no hope. I would say, of all the books that we have, this is probably, the hope is probably the most muted in this book. I mean, this is a pretty in-your-face, challenging book, not a book of comfort. This is, if, if someone is despondent and dealing with depression, I would not prescribe the book of Amos, okay? But 
But it's still a book we need, and we'll talk about that a little more. But there's some hope. Listen to what he says, though, in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 5. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love God, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So, remember I said one of the key phrases in the prophets is, the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, and gracious and merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, uh, who also do justice. Take it from Exodus 34. So, Amos still sees God as that. And so he says, you know, if you see God and, and this concerns you, go to him. Seek mercy. But one thing he says is, but don't think that you can just go to God and not be concerned, again, about how you are treating those around you. You've got to come with repentance, turning from what you have been done unto the Lord God. And in spite of that kind of muted note of, of hope where he says, you know, perhaps God might relent. In the end, he sees that God is going to do something. And, and, the, and the last few verses of the book is kind of a note of hope. And let me just illust- uh, read a couple of those for you. In verses 11 and 12, chapter 9. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now, the key thing there is that, so he contemplates Israel, Judah, kingdom of David flourishing once again. But he also says, there will be all the nations that will bear my name. In other words, it won't be just Israel to whom he will say, I am your God and you are my people, but to all the nations, to Edom and Damascus and Egypt, he will say, I will be your God and you will be my people. So he's looking for a day when, there will be a worldwide restoration of what God intended for creation. So even though the situation in the moment may be rather bleak, the long-term prospects are good for this world and for restoration. So what should we do with this book? Let me give you a few considerations to think about and take with you. So the first thing I would say is that we need this vision of God. In this In this time, this is not the vision of God that we will often see. And it's kind of, if anything, it's kind of mocked. It seemed like anybody who sees this is kind of a weirdo. But but in reality, this is actually the the God that we want and that we need. We do not want a God who is unconcerned about evil. We don't want a God who's standing afar off and saying injustice occurs, and that's okay. We want a God who cares about these things. And that's the God that we have. That's the God that Amos presents to us. And we can also see that this is actually the God of the cross. So as Christians, we raise the cross. This is the God of the cross. The God of the cross is concerned about justice. In fact, he's so concerned about it that he said, I would rather give my own son as a substitute and sacrifice so that you could be forgiven than to say, your wrong, your sin, your injustice doesn't matter. So instead, I'll give the just for the unjust to bring you back to God so that my justice is satisfied and you can be justified, declared righteous and forgiven. So if we have a problem with the book of Amos, then we really probably have a problem with the cross as it actually is. We need this vision of Amos. 
And we need this vision of Amos also because it challenges us. You know, again, as we've talked about the hard realities of life, we want to give comfort, that's important, but we also need to be challenged. And, and I would actually say, in spite of what I said earlier, you know, even in the matter of depression or anxiety or someone being despondent, again, I w- I'd probably not say, therefore, read the book of Amos. But still, oftentimes, there's an element of challenge. Some of our depression grows out of the idols we make of others and the unrealistic expectations we have for ourselves that are not in accordance with, with reality, that we have substituted other things as an expectation for what we get from God. And so that we need to be challenged as well as comforted. Well, let me point out three specific challenges that are very important for us to think about. The first is that prosperity is a poor gauge of the future. As, as uh, Amos says, despite the fact that you're doing really well, this does, it's not going to last forever. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. It's a strange thing that when things are going well, we often just think, well, then they'll keep going well. And if there's something, and if there's bad information that threatens that, we can kind of just ignore that because we want to assume things will keep going well. We can do the reverse too. Humans are a strange lot. We can say, because things are going bad, they'll always go bad. There'll never be a day of sun again. But that's not true. We should not assume that because things are going outwardly well, that therefore everything will go well. I remember speaking to a, a, a man who was cleaning uh, or was buffing the floors in our church. I said, and we started talking. I just, so, I just said, well, you know, where does God fit into your life, you know? And he said, well, I think it's going really well with God. And, he said, and I asked him, well, why do you think that? Because my business is going really well. And, and that's kind of the, he's kind of being honest. It's kind of the way we think. And, I, I, and so then we talked about more. But the fact that your business is going well is not an indication of what you will be in the future or where you are with God. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Israel was having successful business, but God was not pleased with them. And so we need to think about this each day, especially in a time when prosperity is more intensive and extensive than it has ever been before. Like that, that doesn't mean that we're going to even live out this day. So we need to think about it. Prosperity is, an, is a poor gauge of the future. Secondly, this book challenges us about making external substitutes for the true worship of God. The true worship of God consists in a heart of faith, hope, and love. And the external things are circumstances of it. But the heart of it is faith, hope, and love. And it is so easy for us to substitute some easier external thing for true religion, for the true religion of God. And in this case, it's religious ceremony. And people have done that throughout the world. I'm involved in this ceremony. We, we uh, have this big religious festival, so we're okay with God. But it, we can find almost endless varieties of this. So we have our doctrine. And I know my doctrine. And I talk about doctrine. And so I'm okay with God. Or it's I'm involved in politics. Or it's uh, outward practices. So I'm involved in fasting or whatever the case may be. Um, it's I'm Presbyterian or I'm charismatic or it's an exciting worship service or it's a high church worship service. I mean, the possibilities are really 
quite endless. But the point is you can have all those things and, ha- and, and be totally opposed to God at the same time. It's only a heart of faith, hope, and love that is acceptable to God. That's what he is after. If we ignore that, now again, our foundation of acceptance with God is in our justification in Christ. But we can't say that, but we also have to be moving towards, we have to repent and turn from unbelief, lack of hope in God, and our hatred of God and man towards the love of God. And that is what he wants from us more than anything. It's what it, where is our hearts, and that's where our focus should be in terms of how we worship the Lord. And there are many, many substitutes to that. We have to be on our guard. That's what Amos, how Amos challenges us. And then the third challenge is we cannot divorce our relationship with God from our relationship with human beings. As Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not optional to seek peace with God. It's not, it's not an option to seek peace with God and be at war with all men. We have to be concerned. And I've seen people who have a zeal for, for religion in some way. Maybe they even want to share the gospel or they want to promote some doctrine or some teaching. But they have no concern for how they come off to people, for whether they treat them with gentleness, for whether they treat them with kindness. And I know this very well because I have often been amongst them. And, and I've realized over time that that's something I need to repent of. You cannot say I'll have a good relationship with God and seek after the Lord while ignoring your relationships with other people. So how are you doing on that? Where you live, how do you think of the people around you? Are they some other, some out there, someone with whom you're not involved? Or are they people that you say, I am part of them. They are important to me. They are significant. As you meet people, as you meet other human beings created in the image of God, how do you respond to them? Are you open-hearted? Are you filled with love for others? This is what God wants. This is what he's concerned about. But now let me close with uh, encouragement. And it's, again, we turn to the book of Acts, and uh, there's a very interesting passage there. So there was a debate in the early church All these people from other nations that were not Jews are coming to Christ and believing in him. So the question is, do they have to become Jews? Do they have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And and they talk about it, they debate about it, they hear what's going on. And it's very interesting. James stands up and he says, Hey, everybody. Remember what Amos said. He goes back to Amos and he quotes the passage I quoted to you at the end. That God would restore the fallen tent of David and, all the, and they would see all the Gentiles, the nations, who bear my name. So what he's saying to them is what Amos was prophesying about, what he was talking about, that is happening right now. Right now, as the nations are starting to believe in Jesus Christ, the fallen tent has been restored because Christ is reigning at the right hand of God, 
and the nations are coming in and they are taking his name upon them. And so we're not waiting for some future time when this prophecy of Amos will be fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in our midst. That's what James says. And so what he concludes from that is he says, hey, this is a great thing. This is what's happening. So it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so he said, let's bring them in. And so that should encourage us because we might look at Amos in a little bit different way. We're not at the place where the kingdom of Israel was where the judgment of God we're just like is coming right now in this place and this time for these reasons. Now again, that's not to say that these things aren't applicable and that God doesn't do these types of things. Indeed he does. But we have seen the wrath of God poured out on the cross of Christ. And we have seen the days of restoration come in. And we're seeing the nations gathered here today. As we see, we have people from, from different nations who are gathered with us in worship, and that's the way it should be because the church is international. It is people being gathered into an international kingdom, a non-political international kingdom under Christ, and that's happening today in our midst. So that should encourage you. It should encourage you to say, the days of restoration have come, and it should encourage you to be telling people that they have come, to tell people about Jesus, to tell people about his reign, and to take his name upon themselves as we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. The nations are being gathered in. So that's exciting news, and God wants us to be part of it. So we look at Amos from a little bit different perspective. These are, in a way, these aren't the days of wrath. These are the days of restoration. But in the midst of these days of restoration, we always need to remember he's still the lion. 